This is Cosette's Randy Earl uh, recording a Dharma talk given today at the NC State Buddhist Philosophies Sunday afternoon meditation group. This is not a recording of the live talk, but I'm trying to, to uh, reproduce the talk here for those who were not able to attend but might like to hear it. Um, the date is April 15, 2012. The topic is the, uh, the Buddhist approach to interfaith dialogue. And the reason this came to mind is because the group recently had uh, an interfaith presentation from another tradition a couple of weeks ago. And we recently had the Easter holiday when many students go home and gather with extended family members sometimes. It's a particularly religious holiday which can lead to some interfaith discussion uh, for those who, who differ uh, from the tradition that practices Easter. So, in the, in the ancient times, you know, people didn't travel so much. You could live your entire lifetime in your own village, in your own culture, in your own religious tradition, and not be exposed to people from other faith traditions. But in today's world, that's really almost impossible in modern America. Uh, we are increasingly multicultural, and you're very, very likely to have exposure to people from other faith traditions. And it's especially an issue in today's um, increasingly polarized society in some areas, in the areas of politics, certainly, but also in the area of religion, where some factions within uh, various traditions have become more uh, decisively entrenched in their position. Um, so the interfaith dialogue can sometimes be more like not a dialogue but a debate or uh, contentious. So that's, it's a very important topic today and, and the question of how to deal with that skillfully in terms of, uh, in Buddhist terms, we try to deal with things using skillful means. So I'd like to address this topic looking at it, so to speak, from three different ways. And I would uh, make the case that these, are, these three are increasingly skillful approaches. So let me proceed with, um, well, first of all, the three categories, I would say. Well, the first one would be looking at words and dogma, so to speak. Uh, the second being actions and practice and the third being understanding and wisdom. So let's uh, start off with the first category, looking at words and dogma. Often that would be the first approach of people to, to look at you know, the, the underpinning uh, sutras, in our case, or scriptures, so to, uh, to use the terminology of other traditions, and to see what it says in the words. And this, uh, you can find many, many places for example, in the, the Dhammapada, where the Buddha says, this is the only path that leads to pure vision, there is no other. Or, the best among paths is the Eightfold Path. And you can find a lot of passages like that uh, that would seem to be very clear. It uses the definite article, THE. Okay, this is THE way, there is no other. So it would sound very um, uh, 
forceful, very adamant that this is the only path and therefore the inverse would be true, the exclusion of others as true paths. And obviously this could be a cause for a great conflict, especially when other traditions say the same thing, you know, my way is the only way. No, my way is the only way. And if they both believe they hold the truth with a capital T, there's very little room for negotiation or compromise or, or peaceful coexistence. So I think we can safely say that that is, if nothing else, not a very harmonious approach. Now, the question is, well, is that an appropriate way to look at these important documents, these sutras, the, the written foundations of our teachings? Well, I think very clearly the answer is that yes, we should move on and not just focus on the words um, because, for example, in, in these sutras, in the Surangama Sutra, we talk about, we see the Buddha saying that words are only fingers pointing at the moon, that one should not mistake the finger for the moon. Words are labels, abstractions, they're finite, and when you're trying to describe the infinite with a finite label, you're going to to miss parts of it, miss big parts of it. And if different people choose different labels that are finite, they can easily choose different ones. Even though they're trying to describe the same thing, their different choices in, in finite labels and, and metaphors will lead to conflict if we're not careful. Um, and in the uh, in another sutra, the, the Buddha goes on to say that all the Dharma teachings our fingers pointing at the moon. And that's very clearly telling us that we should be very careful not to be attached, too attached to the individual words. So to go on, uh, for example, if we look at the Heart Sutra, in the middle of the Heart Sutra it says that uh, when you reach this place of, of deep prajnaparamita, deep understanding, deep wisdom, you will see that there is no path, no knowledge, no attainment to quote that one line. Um, so that's the other extreme. Sometimes you see it says this is the path, there is no other, and then sometimes you see there is no path. Well, obviously this is a question of perspective, and there are various perspectives in the middle. Um, we commonly talk about in Buddhism that there are um, three paths you know, there's the path of development, of cultivation, meaning, and that, that describes the path where there are, there are techniques, there are practices, definite things to learn how to do and to do, and there are stages of learning, stages of development, um, and that's how we know how to progress. But you can get too attached to that, too attached to, okay, I'm at this step on the path and I have to do this next and I've, I've achieved this level and I'm so proud of that or whatever. Um, that's why we also have the path of letting go, it's called. Letting go of your attachments, becoming aware of your attachments, even if it's an attachment to the path, and let go of that. And the third path is called the path of no path, which we just mentioned in the Heart Sutra, where once you know a fully awakened being realizes that in a state of full awareness there is no path, there is simply being in a state of oneness. 
So that, that's a very, very quick overview, but just to demonstrate the point that even within Buddhism, there are various paths. And, and obviously there are the different schools. We all know that there are different schools and groups within Buddhism who have, have chosen approaches that have worked for them. And we'll talk about that a little bit more later. So the summary at this point is to see that, you know, we can't really look at the words or at dogma to say they're, that we have the one and only truth with a capital T or the one and only path. And we've seen that there are multiple paths within Buddhism. So how do we address the question of faith traditions, paths outside of Buddhism? And this is where I'd say let's move on from the first point where I was talking about uh, words and dogma to the second point about actions and practice. And this is very important and I would say a more skillful approach than just looking at the words in, in sutras. Because Buddhism is a practice primarily, not a belief system. You don't have to buy into a dogma. It's putting something into practice and action. And it's always based on right here, right now, what's what's the appropriate thing to do in the situation I'm in for the person that I'm dealing with or others that I'm dealing with right now. And the way Buddhism addresses this is by the precepts. When one officially becomes a Buddhist, one uh, takes some uh, vows and, and uh, to um, live in accordance with some precepts. And I won't go over all that, that here. Uh, we could make this talk far too long. Um, but in general, I'd like to focus in on one particular set of precepts. The, uh, well, just to recap briefly, there's, there's taking the three refuges, there's the three pure precepts, and then what's called the ten grave precepts, and these form the sixteen bodhisattva precepts. Um, the first five of the ten grave precepts, generally, these are the ones that everybody's kind of familiar with. You know, not to not to kill, not to steal, and 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 so on. And these are generally, in terms of your behavior, obviously they affect others, but it's also, perhaps more importantly, intended to be your behavior, in terms of refraining from doing bad things, so that you can focus more on your practice. So they're somewhat inwardly focused. The second set of five are considered to be more outwardly focused in terms of your dealing with others. And I'd like to mention three in particular here that I would suggest that one would put into practice in terms of having discussions with others in general, but especially in terms of interfaith dialogue. So there are three precepts I'll touch on here. One is, see the perfection. Do not speak of others' errors and faults. A next is, Realize self and other as one. Do not elevate the self and blame others. And the third would be actualize harmony. Do not be angry. If we keep these in mind, dealing with other people in any circumstance, but especially in interfaith dialogue, then we will keep it at a harmonious level and not a conflict level. Um, and that's what I mean in terms of you know, if you're if you're not going to argue the dogma, you know, then the dogmatic issues aren't so terribly important. Um, and let me give an example of what one of the masters has said about this. If we look at uh, what Master Dogen says in 
fascicle called Jipo in the Shobo Genzo, and that translates as the title translates as on the whole universe in ten directions, which basically means kind of applying to to everything. Uh, the context is that this fascicle is directly discussing comparison of different schools of Buddhism, but given the title, it applies more broadly as well. So given that context, let me read it to you here. It says, he, he's talking about uh, Buddhist teachers and Buddhist practitioners, and he says, they do not slander each other or talk about each other's merits or weaknesses. They help give rise to spiritual goals by making respectful inquiries. In receiving the Dharma of the Buddhas and ancestors, we explore it through our training just as they do. We do not insult them or judge them as being right or wrong or say insulting things about them. So that's how Master Dogen describes what I'm talking about in terms of applying these precepts in terms of our interaction with others regardless how you feel about the Buddhist dogma or, or the, the other traditions dogma, always deal with them in this way in terms of see the perfection, do not speak of others' errors and faults, realize self and others one, do not elevate the self and blame others, and actualize harmony, do not be angry. I think that would be putting these actions into practice would be far more skillful than focusing on on words and dogma. But I think we could go one step further even. In the third category that I mentioned, dealing with understanding and wisdom. Um, and if we can kind of look at this in a progression, relying on words and dogma is, is using somebody else's words, somebody else's understanding. Uh, putting our precepts into practice and action is trusting the path that we are following to be beneficial even if we don't perhaps completely understand it but we are have enough faith to practice that um, that would be like knowing not to stick your hand in a fire because you have been told it will burn you the understanding and wisdom portion is where you have such a deep understanding of the causes of, of, of conflict and, and disharmony that, that could arise from certain interactions that it's like when your hand gets near the fire and it feels the heat you automatically instinctually pull it back without having to think about it so I would say that's not a practice or an action you consciously take it's instinctual coming from a deep deep wisdom a deep understanding and that's what I'd like to talk about in this section um, so uh, and this also involves looking at the spirit of the teachings versus the letter of the teachings in terms of really, really understanding it instead of looking at the words. So what I'd like to do now is to refer to <laughs> actually what I consider one of the, the strangest metaphors I've run across in the Buddhist teachings and the short title is the Snake Simile Sutra. The longer title is the Sutra on Knowing the Better Way to Catch a Snake. And the reason for the title is that the Buddha is comparing his teachings to catching a snake, which doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. 
until you understand that this sutra is specifically dealing with the hazards involved with understanding the teachings incorrectly and in fact uh, dealing with the, the letter of the teachings versus the spirit of the teachings. So I'm going to read you uh, one page from this and uh, you're going to hear the phrase bhikshus and this means people who are who are listening to the talk, the followers, followers of his, his teaching. Here's the quote. Bhikshus, a person who studies the way can be compared to a man trying to catch a poisonous snake in the wild. If he reaches out his hand, the snake may bite his hand, leg, or some other part of his body. Trying to catch a snake that way has no advantages and can only create suffering. Bhikshu's understanding my teaching in the wrong way is the same. If you do not practice the Dharma correctly, you may come to understand it as the opposite of what was intended. But if you practice intelligently, you will understand both the letter and the spirit of the teachings and will be able to explain them correctly. Do not practice just to show off or argue with others. Practice to attain liberation, and if you do, you will have little pain or exhaustion. Bhikshu's, an intelligent student of the Dharma, is like a man who uses a forked stick to catch a snake. When he sees a poisonous snake in the wild, he places the stick right below the head of the snake and grabs the snake's neck with his hand. Even if the snake winds itself around the man's hand, leg, or another part of his body, it will not bite him. This is the better way to catch a snake, and it will not lead to pain or exhaustion. Bhikshu's, a son or daughter of good family who studies the Dharma, needs to apply the utmost skill to understanding the letter and the spirit of the teachings. He or she should not study with the aim of boasting, debating, or arguing, but only to attain liberation. Studying in this way, with intelligence, he or she will have little pain or exhaustion. So we see here that a very clear, and he mentions it a couple of times, Focuses, the intent is to look at the spirit of the teachings, not to rely on the word, not to fire off verse sound bites to each other in, in debates, and in fact not to engage in debates or arguments at all. But more importantly for our own practice to, to learn to not be too attached to a, a false understanding of the teachings. Another excellent metaphor that he gives, one that's referred to very, very often, is called the raft metaphor. In fact, the name of this tradition, the Mahayana tradition, Maha means great, Yana means raft, and it so it translates to great raft. And this story will explain that. Again, this is also from the Snake Simile Sutra, but it's found in many others as well. And in fact, he says here, Bhikshus, I have told you many times the importance of knowing when it is time to let go of a raft and not hold on, hold on to it unnecessarily. When a mountain stream overflows and becomes a torrent of flood water carrying debris, a man or woman who wants to get across might think, what is the safest way to cross this flood water? Assessing the situation, she may decide to gather branches and grasses, construct a raft, and use it to cross to the other side. But, after arriving on the other side, she thinks, I spent a lot of time and energy building this raft. It is a prized possession, and I will carry it with me as I continue my journey. If she puts it on her shoulders or head and carries it with her on land, Bhikshu's, do you think that would be intelligent? The Bhikshu's replied, 
no world-honored one. The Buddha said, how could she have acted more wisely? She could have thought, this raft helped me get across the water safely. Now I will leave it at the water's edge for someone else to use in the same way. Wouldn't that be a more intelligent thing to do? The bhikkhus replied, yes, world-honored one. The Buddha taught, I have given this teaching on the raft many times to remind you how necessary it is to let go of all of the true teachings, not to mention teachings that are not true. So that is a very good example of not being too attached to the words, too attached to the dogma, too attached to the teachings because they are a means to an end, not the end themselves. So at this point I'd like to mention the tenth precept, the last one listed in the list of the grave precepts. Um, this is one that I learned and gained a, a good understanding of from uh, John Dido Luri Roshi, abbot of the, uh, or I should say late abbot of the Zen Mountain Monastery. Um, I had the fortune to meet him and, and uh, talk with him at a retreat there once and I consider him one of my teachers because even though I wasn't face to face with him much I, I relied very heavily on his, his books and his teachings at one stage of my practice when I had a, um, access to no other teacher. Um, and in part of their precepts training he discusses all of the precepts and on the tenth of the grave precepts he, he taught me something important. The precept is worded as follows. Experience the intimacy of things. Do not defile the three treasures. Now for those who not, may, be, may not be aware of it, the three treasures are the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And in this case we're focusing on the Dharma. And the, the word Dharma has uh, a few different meanings depending on application. It can refer to the teachings in the path, but it can also, and in this case, refers to the entire world, our, the, the, the reality that we experience in our lives. So, if we look at the reality of humanity, of all the people on this planet, we see that other paths, other religious traditions are part of the world. It is part of reality. To deny their existence would certainly be false. They are, they do exist. But they exist because they provide value to many, many millions of people. Um, they exist because people find value in them. And to try and deny that or to fault that is to defile the Dharma in the words of this precept, to defile one of the three treasures. We need to accept that these these traditions exist and not only exist but they provide value to people they they have a, a benefit so I would like to use a few metaphors to help provide an understanding of this first of all let's let's set some uh, baseline assumptions here first of all let's assume that we're all all people are trying to understand the same ultimate reality, the same uh, infinity, the same uh, reality, the same truth with a capital T, whether we call it God or we call it the Dharmakaya 
or, or whatever. Let's assume that we're all addressing the same thing. I'd like to use a, a Judeo-Christian metaphor and the one that says that all people, all humanity, we are all children of God. Now what I like about this metaphor is that it equates us to children. And we all know, especially any of us who have children or have had siblings or have <laughs> had anything to do with children and teaching or whatever, understand that children are different. Everybody's unique and different, but very importantly in this aspect, children have different affinities, different skill sets, different learning styles, different ways of understanding the world. Some are very verbal. They understand words and stories. Um, some are very artistic. They can understand things when they can express them artistically or see them artistically. Some are very physical. They understand things that they can touch and work with. Some are very relationship focused. They need to be in contact with others and, and dealing with things through others. And I'm sure many other ways that I, I can't think of to mention. And we tend to understand this and appreciate this with children and make allowances for it and try to accommodate them and try to give them the best learning environment that suits their their affinity. But for somehow or other we tend to forget this in terms of adults and and our methods for addressing our spiritual pursuits and we tend, tend to think that there's only one way that's the right way. And I would like to to suggest that we should look at ourselves as children with different skill sets and different affinities and therefore suited to different paths and traditions. I would like to uh, to give another look at that, a very poetic look at that from Master Dogen. Um, and one of his fascicles, I forget which, it may be Genjo Koan and he says the following when the Dharma has not yet fully penetrated into body and mind one thinks that one is already filled with the Dharma when the Dharma fills the body and mind one thinks that something is still lacking and let me pause here and reiterate he's saying when when you don't really have it completely you think that you know everything and you're kind of ready to go off and, and argue and, and say you know I understand the truth but he says when the truth really fills you when you really understand it you realize that that you don't see the whole picture so let me read that again and then continue when the Dharma has not yet fully penetrated into body and mind one thinks that one is already filled with the Dharma when the Dharma fills the body and mind one thinks that something is still lacking. For example, when we sail a boat into the ocean beyond sight of land, and when our eyes scan the horizon in the four directions, it simply looks like a circle. No other shape appears. This great ocean, however, is neither round nor square. It has inexhaustible characteristics. To a fish, it looks like a palace. To a heavenly being, a jeweled necklace. To us, as far as our eyes can see, it looks like a circle. All the myriad things are like this. Within the dusty world and beyond, there are innumerable aspects and characteristics. 
we only see or grasp as far as the power of our eye of study and practice can see. That's the end of the quote. But I want to repeat the last line. Within the dusty world and beyond, there are innumerable aspects and characteristics we only see or grasp as far as the power of our eye of study and practice can see. So I, I think this is a beautiful example, and, and water is often used as an, a, a symbol for enlightenment. The ocean is huge and vast. It has an infinite variety of shapes to the shoreline. You might have the majestic fjords of Norway and flat sandy beaches and chalk cliffs of Dover and you know just an uncountable array of different shapes but we no matter how we are how high we are on the mast of a ship in the ocean we only see a circular horizon around us we only see a very small part of it and he's making the point that enlightenment is the same way we only see a small part of the whole no matter what words we choose to describe it what metaphor we choose to describe it it will not describe the whole and if you and I are on different ships, we will see different parts of the ocean and may describe them differently. When I read this metaphor, I thought of Venn diagrams, you know, uh, the, the different circles or shapes representing uh, sets of things and when they overlap, the sets intersect. So if, if you draw the biggest possible circle, or I guess in Dogen's point, uh, maybe an irregular shape, and draw different religious traditions, uh, they would be smaller circles only of parts and for example some might overlap like Judaism Christianity and Islam would overlap a little bit because they're all monotheistic they all refer to the God of Abraham so they're all similar and overlap at that point but then they all have their differences and then Buddhism would be a different circle and it would probably not overlap at all and be farther away because it uses very different words and very different metaphors and then Hinduism and Taoism and all the other traditions uh, would, would be similarly separate or overlapped depending upon their characteristics. But the point to remember is they are all subsets of the same larger set, the same ultimate truth, God, Dharmakaya, whatever you choose to call it. It's simply that we all have a different perspective, a different viewpoint that were very limited. So what do we do in terms of interfaith dialogue? Well it's always situational. In Buddhism again it's not not a, a belief system or a dogma, it's a practice, it's what you do and so it's always situational. This, this moment, my circumstances now, the person that I'm with, um, and so I would say we apply the precepts, we act, we treat them kindly, we ask respectful questions to promote spiritual development, we do not argue or judge. And we do this not only because it's a good practice, but because we've developed a deep understanding of, of uh, the fact that we are limited, all trying to describe the same thing, but we're on the same path, ultimately. And we do not defile the three treasures. So I hope this, this helps to shed some light on the Buddhist perspective of interfaith dialogue. This is all that I discussed in the uh, meeting today. 
a question did come up there was one question afterwards the questioner said well this seems to assume that the person you're talking to has a belief or a religion but what about atheists or, or secularists and um, my response to that was uh, that indeed I, it, I guess my title of the talk did rather make it sound that way but I did not have that intent uh, maybe I should have said in any discussion with anyone we need to keep all these things in mind the Buddha said I only teach two things the existence of suffering and the ending of suffering he really didn't see it as a dogma as a religion as a belief system just as a practical system to deal with practical issues and and people all people whether they they use uh, a religion to address it or not they have some kind of way of understanding the world some kind of way of dealing with living in this world with the issues that we all have um, the the pain and suffering that that all sentient beings living will experience um, so I, I did not mean to suppose that they have to have a religion or have to have a belief system um, necessarily I think this applies to everyone so um, that's the end of the talk may all beings be happy may they be joyous and live in safety thank you